This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. The damage of the COVID-19 lockdowns on K-12 education may be the most widespread and enduring legacies of the pandemic. While the debate around returning to the classroom continues apace, a full year of lost classroom experience can never be recovered. In the scramble to find a way to return to normal, few policymakers seem to be asking our fellow citizens, particularly the parents of our children, how much a year of remote, asynchronous learning has hurt the development of our next generation. Were young students able to find a way to succeed despite the challenges of a lockdown? Or instead, do parents believe this past year has been so harmful they may consider their child repeating a year rather than advance next fall? To help understand these questions, Pioneer Institutes commissioned a survey conducted by Emerson Polling entitled Massachusetts Residents' Perceptions of K-12 Education During the COVID-19 Pandemic. Released April 11th, this survey probes parents' and other residents' views on our education system's performance and the effects that performance had on their children's education. My guests today are the survey's lead analyst, Emerson Polling's Isabel Halloway, and Pioneer Institute's Charlie Chepo. Our conversation will center on the results of the survey, how those results vary among different demographic groups, and what these data suggest to education policymakers about a path forward that acknowledges the deep effects of the past year's lockdowns. When I return, I'll be joined by Emerson Polling's Isabel Halloway and Pioneer Institute's Charlie Chepo. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now joined by Pioneer Institute's Charlie Chepo and Isabel Holloway from Emerson Polling. Welcome back to the show, Charlie, and it's nice to have you, Isabel. Thanks for having me. All right, let's let's get started. I want to start with you, Charlie, because uh, this poll, this um, very uh, interesting poll was commissioned by Pioneer Institute. Uh, You must have been part of that decision. What uh, event or data point precipitated Pioneer's decision to do this poll? I think it was uh, the fact that throughout the uh, throughout the uh, pandemic, starting from the earliest uh, sort of guidance from the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, you know, Pioneer has been weighing in and had some strong opinions about things they did right and things they did wrong. So we thought, you know, a year in, it was a good time to get a better sense of what the public at large was thinking about how schools had fared during this time. Now, Isabel, you were the one doing the hard work of the poll itself. You, uh, you chose a sample size and uh, uh, subjects for the poll. How did you determine how big the poll would be, who, do you, who you would ask, and what level of confidence you wanted to end up with at the end? Yeah, so our sample size for this poll was about 1,500 individuals. Um, we wanted to have a fully representative sample, which usually means you need more than five, six, seven hundred 700 individuals. But in this case, we were looking to look at a specific subset of parents of um, children that are in the K-12 public school system in Massachusetts. And in order to do that, we needed to increase the sample size so we could get proportional uh, representation of parents so we could get both the views of the parents of the students who are in the school system as well as the general Massachusetts population because um, we could gauge then if there are any differences between those two groups. Now you're the polling expert. How does one guarantee that the, your sample size reflects the uh, the sentiment of the public at large? 
So polls are both a snapshot in time and a range of course. It's important to remember. Um, for this poll, we had a margin of error of about 2.4%. What that means is that you can reasonably expect um, with a 95, degree of 95 degrees of confidence that the data point will lie within 2.4 percentage points of what the actual um, number is in the population. Sure. Now, now, Charlie, at a very high level, um, what did you hope to find out in this poll? Where, where were your uh, uh, suspicions or curiosities? Where did they lie? Well, I think we had a suspicion that, that uh, people generally and certainly parents were not entirely satisfied with uh, uh, the quality of schooling during the pandemic. Um, you know, but beyond that, we didn't we didn't really know what we would find in terms of a lot of specifics. And so uh, we were very interested in finding out, uh, you know, exactly how much parents thought, how much people thought uh, kids' education uh, might have been compromised during the, um, uh, during the pandemic. And, you know, maybe to dig in a little deeper to get a sense of some more specifics in terms of particular areas where, they, where, where, where people were or weren't happy. And we also really didn't have much of a sense of how that information would fall out in terms of various subgroups. And that's what this has provided. Okay, I want to throw this to, to, now we'll get into the data and the details and the results. So I'll throw this uh, first question out to both of you. Um, I like that you used A, B, C, D, and F, we're all familiar that, with that from our own school days. Uh, now, when you asked your, um, your respondents to, to grade the school system in general, uh, plurality uh, gave it a C. Um, that was the most commonly offered answer, which is a pass, uh, but not a very good pass, as we know. Uh, what did your poll polling tell you with this question? Really, our polling tell told us that people aren't happy, but they aren't completely dissatisfied. They haven't seen the school system as an entire failure in this case. You see kind of a nice bell curve with this result. You see that there are 10% that would give an A, but there are also 18% that would give us an F. Um, but it's really important to note here is that there's a lot of variance between subgroups on this issue, um, specifically on the number of children that a parent may have in their household. And we saw there that a trend is the more children that you have, specifically parents that are in a household with three or more children, um, the more likely that the household was to rate the school system as an F. So you're seeing that there are certain groups that are definitely struggling more here. And this question helped us identify which groups those were. Uh, I was really struck by that, the way uh, I, I think that was very interesting. And the other thing that was very interesting to me was this whole issue of synchronous versus asynchronous education. And the fact that the, you know, the more that a student was, you know, in front of a screen with a teacher there in real time, uh, the, the more likely that parents were to feel like their child was ready to move on to the next grade. Whereas where that wasn't the case, there was a much higher percentage of um, of parents who felt like they really weren't sure uh, if their student was ready to move on. Um, so uh, let's um, talk about what I thought was the most positive piece of the uh, poll, which talked about the, the satisfaction with the individual teachers, not the system, but with the individual teachers, my child's teacher, how would I rate him or her? Uh, and what did your poll show in this case? It showed that a near majority, it was right under 50%, said that they were either somewhat or very satisfied um, with the performance of teachers. That 
kind of shows us that teachers are not taking the blunt of the blame for the dissatisfaction that parents are reporting with the school system in general. Teachers are performing, um, as we can all assume, the best that they can under these circumstances, and they're definitely not seen as the issue with the school system in the past year. Yeah, and also I would just add that it wasn't it wasn't like it was 50-50 either. There was about 50% that were satisfied, but only about 29% that weren't. The rest were kind of undecided, I would assume a larger percentage of those folks who weren't parents, my guess would be probably just didn't have so much of an opinion. So, so individual teachers, I think, uh, you know, did well. So then if they were not unhappy with the teacher, there is something else they were unhappy with. And I, I'll take it to the next uh, question and say, uh, this the dissatisfaction seemed to be centered on the fact that, of course, uh, the schools were shut down and kids were learning from home. You asked how strongly teachers unions influenced this decision to, to teach remotely. Uh, you rated that on a scale from one to 10 uh, to explain for our listeners, 10 means uh, the shutdowns were entirely attributable to teachers unions. What was the result of this poll? Yeah, as you said, um, more were saying that teachers unions were involved than not on a much higher degree of scale. Um, over a majority said at a seven or higher on the scale that the teachers union was heavily involved in this decision, which probably correlates with the blame issue on um why the schools were shutting down. They're kind of connecting the two there and connecting that to their satisfaction with the schools. So uh, the, the teachers uh, aren't being blamed for the issue. It's their unions that seem to be uh, getting the ire of the parents. Is that fair? Yeah, and I think there was also plenty of room where uh, clearly uh, it was, there was, it was mixed and, uh, uh, you know, as Isabel said, it was not like a slam dunk, but clearly there was also you know, a degree of dissatisfaction among school districts as well. I don't want to, I certainly don't want to paint it to say that the, the uh, you know, that the poll found that it was entirely teachers union's fault. But I think that individual teachers certainly did better than, um, than sort of more larger, maybe more bureaucratic entities like unions and, and districts. Well, I, I don't want to pile on the uh, teachers unions, uh, but uh, another question you asked was, did, uh, did the respondent think the teachers unions were acting in the best interest of the children? But what was your response uh, results there? Yeah, we saw a plurality there. 45% said that, and this is just the general population, said that the teachers union was not acting in the best interest of children. And it was an even higher percentage among parents of children that are in the public school system. It was about um, 49% that said that they did not think that the unions were acting in the best interest of their children. Now, in, in some of your data, uh, in the footnotes, it did uh, tease out um, differences among uh, um, white parents, black parents, Hispanic parents. Uh, you even teased out some party affiliation. I noticed some uh, uh, very big differences with responses with regard to teachers unions among uh, party affiliation. Uh, I, I'm not going to quiz you on precise numbers, but did you see any broad uh, uh, trends that if, uh, either with race or with uh, ideology? For that question on race, I remember that the white respondents, the white parents were, were um, to a larger degree, reporting dissatisfaction with the teachers unions than the black and African-American respondents and the Hispanic and Latino respondents. Yeah. The other thing that was really interesting, not so much specifically about the unions, and Isabel, I mean, tell me if I don't remember this right, but it's very interesting when uh, when we asked about uh, sort of satisfaction and grades assigned to the to school districts that uh, I believe among African-Americans that was, they also were the most likely to, to give districts an A and the most likely to give districts an F. So uh, there were some, yeah, there was some very interesting data in there. 
Yeah, that that's exactly right. It was almost a third of African-American respondents were giving the school system an F, but the highest proportion um, racially were also giving the school system an A. It was about 22%. So you see that the, it's both ends of the spectrum within that subgroup um, rather than a consistent result within all of Black and African-American respondents. So a flat statistical curve, straight line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, I see. Okay. Um, now, we've done a fair number of episodes on uh, COVID-19 and uh, public health questions, uh, particularly on the vaccine rollouts. You did ask uh, respondents to uh, answer whether teachers might be the first population to be vaccinated, even ahead of the elderly. I was surprised that a plurality of your respondents agreed that teachers perhaps should have gotten it first. Uh, did you did you get any color from that uh, question? Yeah, like you said, it was about a plurality. 45, 46% said that teachers should be vaccinated before even other um, groups that were prioritized, such as elderly and the high-risk individuals. I thought that was interesting. And we saw that public school teachers were approving this slightly more, but there wasn't a significant difference there. What I would take from that question is that there's just a general agreement among not only parents and teachers, but just Massachusetts residents that this has been a major issue, how our public schools have been sort of out of commission or functioning fully online or in a hybrid state for the past year. People are realizing that teachers are very important and having students in school is very important. And I think that that kind of might be the motivation behind so many individuals saying that teachers should be prioritized in the vaccination system. You know, Isabel, um, Joe's supposed to be asking the question here, but I'm just curious <laughs> as someone who does this, um, were you surprised? Were you surprised at that result or did that not was that sort of what you'd expect? Yeah, I, I was surprised by it. I thought that it would be um, a little bit more even. I expected a decent amount to say, yes, that they wanted um, teachers to be vaccinated early. But when you put it as before other groups, it, yeah. it is surprising that people would prioritize teachers other over these other high-risk groups. I'd be curious to know what the uh, the elderly respondents had to say about it. <laughs> that's, that's I, a, I actually have I actually have that every age group um, approved of that except those sixty five and older, um, and those disapproved of it forty seven to thirty three percent. Whereas pluralities of every other age group said yes to that question. Hmm, so there definitely not, is a correlation. There. <laughs> yeah, one does not need to be a sociologist to uh, understand why that might have been the. But way. interesting that even thirty three percent of those over sixty five. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, that, that is interesting. Um, now, I, I think it's important to, for our listeners to know that everything we've talked about bef- uh, up to this moment has been talking about polling the general population. Uh, as as we pointed out at the top of the show, you want to have a large enough st- uh, data set to uh, to understand um, the difference between the general population and, te- and parents themselves. So uh, the questions I want to ask now are about uh, how parents, separate from the population, how they responded. Um, uh, I want to talk about the question on how much their child's education was compromised from remote learning. I think this is perhaps the most important aspect of the entire um, uh, poll. Uh, what did the parents say as far as the amount of damage, if you will, to their child's education this uh, remote learning has cur- uh, caused? Yeah, we saw that a majority, uh, 54%, were saying that their child's education had been compromised at a seven or higher on a scale of one to 10 with one being not compromised at all and 10 being entirely. Um, so we saw that the very, very high percentage of the parental population that said that their child's education was being severely impacted um, because of the coronavirus pandemic and learning and the, pl- the plurality, uh, I believe 21% gave it a 10. So, you know, clearly parents are thinking their kids' education took a hit in the last year. 
Well, that, that's a good segue to my next question. With, with the majority answering seven or higher, which is a lot of damage, uh, you asked the uh, very important question. Did, did their child learn enough in this year, this challenging year, to advance to the next year? What did your data find? Yeah, so I think that this is honestly the most interesting and the most important question when we're looking at what has happened in the past year and the long-term impact that it's going to have on our school systems and the children that are going through them. Um, we saw here that while over a majority, 58% said that they believe their child, um, their learning was adequate to advance to the next grade level, level 16% were saying that they would at least consider having their child repeat the grade at this point, which is almost the end of the school year. And 26% were saying that they were completely unsure on this issue, which means they can't really tell if their child is ready to advance, which is completely understandable. Um, and we saw the same trend here that we saw with the grade level question. Among parents with one or two children, there's a lot more certainty um, that their child is ready to advance to the next grade level. When you get to three, four or more children, those parents are struggling with knowing whether or not one or more of their children are ready to advance to the next grade. Yeah, this uh, this issue of parents being unsure of how much damage, I think, uh, speaks to another question you asked in your poll, which is, you know, how would you rate the adequacy of communication between school administration officials and parents, um, you know, in the pandemic? Um, is this a really a function of that? Is it, in other words, are they saying, um, I don't know how well my kid is doing. Uh, you, the school administrator, can you please help me understand uh, where where I am relative to where he ought to be? Is is that what you're teasing out with that kind of a question? The question that we asked about adequacy of communications was more geared towards the beginning of the pandemic when schools were shutting down. So I'm not sure we could quite draw that line, but I think that is a very interesting point that you bring up because the communication not only between students and teachers, but uh, parents and teachers has changed a lot because of um, the pandemic. There haven't been like these in-person parent-teacher conferences where you can get that face time with your, uh, with your teacher and really kind of gauge how your student is doing. When you're watching your student learn at home all the time, it's just a completely different experience than when they're going and learning all day and coming back in home and you're learning about it then. When you're watching them, it's definitely a different experience for uh, parents. You know, that's an interesting point because I have to say, as a parent, I don't think my experience is so unusual in that I'm always, you know, sort of like playing that game with myself saying, well, you know, do I know enough about what's going on? You know, am I up enough on what's happening with my kids at school? You know, how can I be better at that? And I feel like for a lot of parents, it's almost like um, just the pandemic throws sort of a whole other degree of uncertainty about how to do this, you know, uh, in terms of how to feel like you're you're really uh you know, keeping up with how your kids are progressing and involved enough in their education, uh, it, it, it sort of sets up another obstacle toward your goal of kind of reaching that point. I'm sure this poll uh, for our listeners and those who uh, read it uh, will give parents at least some reassurance that they're not alone, that, the, that their concerns are, are similar to other parents' concerns. What kind of a policy response do you think we could offer in, in, in light of this data? Are, are we are we suggesting that uh, the schools help reach out and communicate with parents uh, and let you know let, let us all take an honest account of the damage that was done and perhaps offer some uh, you know remedies or uh, do you think the the path forward is going to be just to pretend the whole damn thing never happened? Well, I hope the path forward is not to pretend the whole thing never happened. <laughs> you know, look, I think that um, uh, I, I think that there is definitely value here uh, in terms of you know what the, what what 
certainly people perceive to be the degree of damage that the pandemic has done. And that can certainly help uh, uh, shape responses, you know, whether it's a more robust kind of summer school program, you know, or just what what schools might try to do uh, so that this is not just kind of a loss that ripples, you know, through the grades until students graduate, but instead we can sort of do what we can do to, to try to make up for, for what's happened here in the last year. I want to ask uh, Isabel, if you were building a poll, do you get a sense of what you would ask people to know what the right path forward would be? Yeah, I think with that kind of research, an interesting approach would be to do it in an open-ended survey format, because I think that the struggles that parents are facing are wide-ranging, and being able to ask them just to give their own opinions, give their own thoughts on not only what they want going forward, but exactly what went wrong, I think would be very valuable to anybody that's looking um, to kind of get the public school system back on track after this pandemic. Yeah, I think the other interesting piece about that, uh, Isabel, I'm curious to know what you think about it, is that not only has it been wide ranging, I think it's also fast changing. In other words, I think at different points in this pandemic, you might get very different answers. Yeah, and we even saw that. We asked a question for parents if their children have gone back, when they went back. And we saw there that there's even variance in the opinions of parents um, where their children went back maybe in October or November and parents of children who are going back um, more recently, as in February and March. There's a lot of variance there. And as students go back, the parents' opinions will most definitely change. Yeah, I saw that uh, You know, in one of your uh, questions. It surprised me. How many hours per week is the teaching synchronous? Meaning it's remote, but it's remote live. Only 27% was 16 hours or more. Now, I don't know how often, how many hours in a full school week there are, but that seems to me less than half, right? 20, 27% are getting half, the rest are getting far less than half. That has to have a profound uh, effect. Um, did you draw any correlation between the, um, the degree to which it was synchronous and asynchronous? And as, again, this is a sliding scale, you go from one hour of synchronous to 40 hours of synchronous. Uh, is, it direct, is there a direct correlation? In other words, could you do a, 40 hour, a full school week of synchronous um, training and have satisfaction be relatively high um, as opposed to what we had in the last year? I don't know that I can answer your question per se, but one thing that was clear was that the more hours of synchronous education uh, students had, the more likely parents were to think they were ready to move on. In other words, there was a definite correlation between the synchronous hours and this fear of, well, you know, my student, my, my, my child is not ready to move up to the next grade. Yeah, I think you definitely see a correlation between that, which is kind of our barometer for gauging like how students are actually doing, whether they're whether or not they're ready to move on. But you also see a correlation between the amount of synchronous hours and the amount of adequate socialization that the child got. You see when there are children that are getting less than five to ten hours social um, of synchronous education, they are the parents of the children are feeling that their socialization over the past year has been way less adequate than those of par- parents of children who have been getting 11 or more uh, hours of synchronous education a week. Okay, terrific. Now we are getting close to the end of our time together, the end of the show. So I want to uh, give a plug for Emerson Polling. Uh, you were kind enough to be on Hubwonk around the time of the presidential election back in November. Uh, we talked about the polls that you had done before the election and immediately after the election. Um, and I know that was a popular show. Uh, For our listeners who want to find out more detail on the poll we are discussing today in today's show, and of course, future polling, where can we go? And 
first, tell us what exciting work you're doing now over at Emerson uh, in your future polling uh, coming up this summer. Um, well, right now, since the 2020 election, we've been focusing on more academic studies and kind of going back and analyzing all of this data that we have from 2020, along with projects like this that we're doing with the Pioneer Institute. But over the summer, we're looking forward to polling the uh, Boston mayoral race. And we're also dipping our toes in the New York City mayoral race a little bit out of Ooh. our um, area <laughs> but as well. So those two more mayoral races will be polled quite frequently by us over the, the next couple of months and really excited about it. That sounds like fun. Isabel and her colleagues did a great job on this. All right, kudos to to uh, Emerson. And where can we find uh, you or the 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 polling site with the data from your uh, latest polls? Emersonpolling.com. Wonderful. Okay, well, thank you very much uh, for joining the show today, Isabel. You were a terrific guest. This is your first time on. I hope you'll uh, consider being with us again in the future. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. And Charlie, again, thank you for joining the show again. Uh, you were great and you helped us both uh, as a uh, uh, polling expert, but also as a parent. And I appreciate the color in the, in the conversation. Thank you. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Hubwonk is a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk. If you give us a favorable rating or a five-star review, that would help others find us on their favorite podcatcher. If you have questions for me or ideas or suggestions for future podcast episode subjects, you're welcome to reach out to me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. <laughs>